Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast to focus on the political side of pharmacy. Here's your host, Eric Geyer. Welcome, Political Pharmacist Podcast listeners. I'm your host, Eric Geyer, and with me today I have Gabriel Levitt. Gabriel Levitt is the president and co-founder of PharmacyChecker.com. He's also the founder of Prescription Justice. Welcome to the podcast, Gabe. Hey, Eric. It's uh, great to be here, and thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Hey, the pleasure is mine because I always appreciate when people like to comment and share their thoughts when it comes to pharmacy and politics. That's why I have this podcast. But uh, you recently wrote an, wrote an article that was published in The Hill, which I thought was worth discussing. Would you mind discussing kind of like what you wrote? Yeah, sure. Um, well, first, let me give let me give your audience the title of that article. Murray's drug bill includes a poison pill for prescription drug imports. So the article is about language in in proposed federal legislation that would negatively affect prescription drug importation, especially personal prescription drug importation. Currently, statutory authority exists in the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act that is supportive of personal prescription drug importation. Section 906 of the Senate's version of the Drug User Fee Act would undermine those authorities. The bottom line there is, um, as you know, Eric, as well as I do, if not better, drug prices uh, for many Americans are a big problem. I believe drug prices are actually a crisis. It's really no wonder that Americans either choose to to save money or in some cases they have to get their medications from Canada or another country because they can't afford them here. And so when I saw this language in this bill might actually undermine the permissiveness of the law now, I felt compelled to write about it because it's an area that I've been focused on for a long time. Yeah, and it's one of those things that's weird. As a pharmacist, we kind of know that like prices are cheaper in Canada. There's probably a lot of little reasons why on top of just big lobbying and everything else. But I thought the article was actually pretty cool with what you wrote about, and especially since the significant of the FDA user fee bill amendments. Can you kind of elaborate exactly what it does that really limits importation? All by itself, the drug user fee bill would not limit um, importation. And let me explain what what that means back about 30 years ago congress passed the prescription drug user fee act and they did it in order to speed up to i should say to their credit to effectively speed the process of drug applications to get drugs to market at faster but still safely it means they had to hire hire more hands hire more fda reviewers. So what they did is they created fees that drug manufacturers would have to pay the FDA in order to have their drugs reviewed. So drug user fee. Subsequent to that, a similar law passed for for generic drugs and also for biologic drugs. And so every five years, Congress has 
um, has to reauthorize that. It's the reauthorization of the Drug User Fee Act. And what happens is different members of Congress, different pharmaceutical interests, different um, healthcare activist interests want Congress to put other things into that bill. Some of the things can be great. They can they can help cut costs. They can help make drugs more more safe. But in this case, we ended up with this section 906, which, you know, just for a little bit of the legislative kind of drama here, the House passed its version of the drug user fee several months ago. So that's done. The problem, Bill, as I see it, is in the Senate, and it passed the Senate Health Committee, Health, um, Health Education, Labor, and Pensions, and that has the what I believe to be ba- backwards thinking section, not 906. The issue here is that the FDA user fee bill is a must-pass bill, and so that's why people try to get things in there, but. It turns out that this not 906, I should say, I don't know if it's anticlimactic or not, but it might very well get dropped from the final bill. So, you know, that's a good thing. Gotcha. Yeah. And it's funny how all that works because I always think of the budget every year and they ha- they have to pass that. Otherwise, they have a government shutdown or, you know, whatever drama you can think of. And occasionally it gets delayed, but in the end, something always happens and they always come to an agreement because they realize that they have to actually have a working government or in this case a working fda uh, i thought some other things you pointed out there were that were that were kind of cool that were related to this was that senator tim kane actually said that his father was a lawbreaker i didn't know if you want to discuss that at all and the other thing i wanted to bring up was how many people actually do import medications throughout the year do you have any numbers on those as well i do and the numbers are independent of any research i've done which i have also let me address what Tim Kaine said, because here's what happened. And I just want you to kind of picture this. So so the health committee is debating the, the Senate committee manager's version of this bill very quickly. Who are the managers? Well, the, the chairperson, which is Senator uh, Pat Murray from Washington, and ranking member Republican um, Richard Burr from North Carolina. They put up their own manager's bill. And during this hearing, what committee members do is they offer amendments. And the committee leaders knew that Senator Bernie Sanders was going to introduce an amendment on drug importation which I read, and that amendment would have, in my opinion, been good for importation. It would have solidified gains with um, wholesale drug importation from Canada, which is already legal on the books, even though none of the programs to actually do it at the wholesale level have moved forward yet. But it would also make it legal to import drugs from the United Kingdom, uh, which is a much bigger market than Canada, and in two years um, from other um, 
high income countries where regulations are similar to ours. So they knew that that amendment was going to be introduced. And so Murray and Burr came up with some way to kind of truncate that, to kind of stop that momentum. And they came up with a compromise on importation. And that, and that came to be not, not, not 906, the section of law I wrote about in The Hill. So Tim Kaine said, hey, look, I have to tell you, I am sympathetic to Senator Sanders' bill. And I, I'm, you know, I, I would be inclined to vote for it. But I hear that the politics here is that if we were to pass that amendment, the whole bill might not pass. And I'm not willing to do that. So I'm happy to see that there's a section not 906, because you have to understand, Eric, the House managers portrayed 906 as actually good for importation, as something that would actually make it happen. And um, so Tim Kaine said, and I quote, my father brings his glaucoma medication in from Canada and has for years. He is a lawbreaker, and he said that in quotes, but he saves a lot of money by doing it. And there's a whole lot of people just like him. <laughs> and it was really uh, pretty cool for him to just say, look, people, people do this already. Um, and so he did say there's a whole lot of people just like him. And I wrote in the article, that's right. And the figure that I gave was 2.3 million people each year, I should add, with a prescription. And I'll tell you why that's important in a, in a li little, little bit, um, import prescriptions because of the prices. And that comes from the Journal of the American Medical Association. So a lot of people do, do this. And so is Tim Kaine's dad really a lawbreaker? Um, you know, that speaks to the policy weeds of the article. To you, it might be interesting. It might put other people to sleep. But I think pharmacists, especially ones engaged on public policy, uh, need to know this, that current law is much more favorable to personal drug importation than most people know. Most people think, okay, I've heard that the FDA has this personal importation policy where they just kind of have a yellow light and they let it go and they have certain guidance that if there's a drug that isn't available here, they can use their enforcement discretion to permit, um, you know, small amounts of drugs for a person's own use where they wouldn't allow that. Let's say if someone was trying to do it wholesale, like, you know, buy drugs, you know, buy a bunch of insulin from Canada and then resell it. That is something that the FDA could not and does not tolerate. But it's not just that. Section 804 of the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, subsection J, actually has a congressional declaration that says the secretary, meaning the Secretary of Health and Human Services, which has authority over the FDA, should permit, um, uh, should use its enforcement discretion to permit 
um, uh, prescription drug importation for personal use that is not an unreasonable risk. So that's one part of it. A second part of it says the secretary by waiver on a case-by-case basis or by regulation may. So the first one says should. This one says may grant waivers expressly permitting it. And then a third part of this subsection says the secretary shall and have not done so yet draft regulations to allow importation specifically from Canada from pharmacies that have to register first with the FDA. So the law is more favorable than people know. 906 would get rid of a lot of what I just said with kind of language that seems like it's pushing the envelope forward, but it is not. And so that's um, that's kind of, uh, you know, maybe it's too in the, the weeds, but, you know, Tim Kaine said his dad is a lawbreaker. Guess how many people uh, who have imported prescriptions, let's just say not controlled drugs, like just mostly maintenance meds for their own use you know tens of millions have done it over the past 20 years how many people do you think have been charged and prosecuted not very many is my guess (laughs) i know of zero tim kane said it to make a point it's just not fair that that would possibly be breaking the the law you know, it's funny, in full disclosure, when my wife and I went to France for like a, uh, you know, pre-having kids time, if you will. and I'm glad you did. Yeah, <laughs> yeah beautiful. Love Paris is amazing, especially when we went in like the early fall. But uh, I actually am such a nerd. Of course, I went into a pharmacy there just to see what they're like. And I went to a bunch because I'm that big of a nerd. But diclofenac gel was OTC there and it wasn't here. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, me being a runner, I was like, this will be great. And I came and brought like four or five tubes home. And I'm like, this is the greatest thing ever. And you know, some of my running friends who had some kind of nagging injuries, I was like, Hey, you should try this. It works great. Now it's over the counter here. So it's like no big deal. But thought that was just kind of one of those things that in full disclosure to the listeners, I've actually done this without even, you know, really thinking about it <laughs> because I knew I could, I won't say get away, but I knew it was okay to do because it was that clofenac. It wasn't in control. It was a small personal right. use. I, I knew that. Right. And so I was like, hey, we don't have this in the States. This is cool because I can actually use this here and have to go get a prescription for something so silly. So full disclosure, I've done it myself. Um, yeah. And then look, look, I, wanna, I want some, some fun full d- disclosure too. My parents have purchased medications from the United Kingdom and Canada during different phases of the Medicare Part D donut hole. Yeah. Uh, you know, so it's certainly something that I would recommend to family and friends. And, you know, I'll tell you, I, I've, I've said to my mom, I, I should say I have said, said to her, Mom, technically you can afford, you can afford your um, COPD meds here. You know, at, at some time you're going to get past your, you know, you're going to get past your deductible and then there'll be a lower pay. So, you know, I'm just kind of throwing that out there, mom. And she's like, I will not get ripped off paying $500 for something that's $100 in Canada. That there are 2.3 million people, 
each year doing this, um, it speaks, you know, it speaks one to the problem and it speaks to we should have fair laws to to, um, regulate that. Yeah. And, you know, when it comes to importation, I've I've heard tons of stories over the years, too, but I definitely always think that there should be fair laws around it. Obviously, personal bias. I want everyone to buy the drugs in America, but I also realize that that might not always be what actually (laughs) works in real life with certain things. So leave it at that. But I will say, yeah, I mean, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, look, I I thought about the podcast I'm on here. I'm thought about. I thought about the audience and I want Americans to be able to buy their prescription drugs here as well. That's, that's the goal. You know, that's the final goal of trying to bring down drug pricing here where this doesn't have to happen. Right. Yeah. But, um, at the same time, what I want pharmacists to know is that, what I'm saying is the like reality for Americans who are uninsured or under insured. I know that there are big pharmacy groups like the National Association of Chain Drug Stores mm-hmm. who spend money on lobbying and they work with the drug companies to lobby against importation because of counterfeit drugs and opioids and it's dangerous. And at the very least, I want American pharmacists to know that there's so much myth making out there about it. And uh, people deserve the truth about what is safe and what is not safe. Which, um, which, which actually segues to the next part very nicely, because I was going to bring up that I had a good friend, I won't say who, but he uh, recently you know, got fined by a state board for unknowingly selling what was actually fake HIV medicine that came from a legitimate major wholesaler in the United States. This wasn't necessarily imported from like, you know, Canada or some third world country or anything like that, but this actually came from a legitimate wholesaler. And they, it's a long story. I won't get too many of the weeds, but basically someone brought it back to him going, hey, I, something's up with this or something along the lines. And you know, he got it as a sealed bottle from his wholesaler. He, you know, 100% legitimate, sold to him, and it was actually a fake. And the state board of pharmacy gave him a fine for it. And he's like, hey, what the hell? I reported this in good faith because I wanted to try and fix a problem for people. And here I am getting fined for it. Do we know any data of, like, counterfeit or other illegal drugs that might be coming from, like, other other countries? Is there any data on that that you can kind of elaborate on? Elaborate on? I know... Uh... I know this is a common thing that people say when they um, when they get interviewed, but I couldn't mean it anymore. I'm so glad you brought I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, so what I believe you're referring to is it's really a debacle of the U.S. drug supply chain, the so-called gold standard. The drugs were um, Gilead HIV drugs, right? I believe so, uh, yes. B- yeah, B- Bictarvi and D- Descovy. How do you pronounce that second one? Yeah, Descovy is right. I, I forget which one right. it was for him, but that semi-rings true in the back of my head. Yeah, yeah. no, so this is being investigated by the DOJ. It was $250 million 
in counterfeit HIV drugs that were sold throughout the U.S. from licensed pharmacies to patients here. Your friend is completely blameless, and I feel I feel bad that he got ensnared in that uh, in that whole thing. Basically, um, uh, wholesalers, as I understand the case, and I did read it, they faked tr um, DSCSA transaction records to say a certain drug was coming from an authorized wholesaler, but wasn't. And Eric, this was huge. So then people ask the question like, well, can we trust Canada? Like, can we trust, you know, drugs being sold in Canada? And if your pharmacist friend and people I know who are pharmacists, and I certainly don't know a hundredth of uh, the number that you do, but I know some, you know, if they had gotten their medications from a wholesaler in Canada, these counterfeited drugs, they wouldn't have gotten the counterfeit drugs because they never entered the drug supply chain. They <laughs> entered the, the drug supply chain here. Same with the European Medicines Agency and the European Union system. I looked it up as soon as I read about this, like, <laughs> wow, how, you know, because you know that these drugs are made all over the all over the world, right? Yeah. So these drugs might be made here. They might be made in Germany. You know, the active ingredient might be made in India or in uh, Italy. Um, but it's really the drug supply chains in the different areas that you need to look into. And, you know, there'll be recalls and this or that. They just didn't get it in the European Union and they didn't get it in Canada. And I can make arguments about why the European system is actually safer uh, for prescription drug distribution. And it's something I'm wor working on. But it's not just that. The FDA is one of the top regulators in the, the world. Generally speaking, when people go into a U.S. pharmacy, they can feel safe that the um, the drug has been vetted and has been manufactured in accordance with um, current good manufacturing practices. However, when you have such high drug prices, it incentivizes counterfeiters <laughs> in a way that they're not incentivized in Canada or in the European Union where drug prices are much lower. So I think people can definitely trust the regulated drugs in Canada and the regulated drugs in the European Union. The question is, what about um, non-regulated so sources that are trying to export bad drugs here, right? Yeah. That, okay, that, that, is, that, is, a, that is a risk. But you have that even within our own supply chain. And this, this $250 million in uh, counterfeit HIV drugs really um, shines a bright light on, one, the vulnerability of our own system, and is actually a good way to show that um, the FDA is not infallible. 
I'm sure the European Medicines Agency is not infallible either, but but we can trust if a drug comes from a licensed pharmacy in, let's say, Manitoba or from London, these are highly sophisticated regulatory environments that if the patient's able to actually get the drug and they have a valid script for it, it's extremely safe. <laughs> yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that. I didn't even think of it before, but you're right. There is more incentive because if you're going to charge two or three thousand dollars per bottle, if you can get a bunch of fakes in there, you basically just robbed a bank, if not several hundred banks for how much cash they have on hand these days to get away with it. Whereas in another country, it might take a zero or two off of that price tag and you don't have nearly the incentive. So, you know, if why wouldn't you go for 200 million if you couldn't go for 2 million somewhere else? Like it just makes sense that you would target where you can get the most bang for your uh, heist, if you will. So I thought that's, yeah. that's pretty interesting that you bring that up. That's actually an issue with importation too. <laughs> yes, it is. And you know, I am sorry that it happened to your friend. I hope that resolves. And it's it's probably happened to at least hundreds, if not thousands, of pharmacists. Yeah. I mean, I it, for all I know, it, and I hate to say this, maybe it happened to me and I didn't know it. But I mean... You didn't, yeah. I mean, how I, do you know if you got... Right. It, it takes right. a pretty vigilant if eye to receive, catch that. If you receive a drug... You, you can't. If you receive a drug and it has the right transaction information pe pedigree, right? Yeah. I don't know what the drug, drug, drug is, but, but the transaction pedigree on your screen uh, in following the DSCSA says it came from Cardinal. It came from McKesson, but someone had faked that. How would you know? Yeah. Uh, that's a great question. I don't. I'm usually pretty savvy in this stuff, and I don't think I would know. So I assume most people wouldn't either. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a great call out there, and I uh, I appreciate you bringing that up because I hadn't even thought about that until we we discussed it. So moving on here a little bit though is you know one thing that obviously we've called out with some of these pricing games, and as P anyone who listens to the podcast knows that PBMs have their own issues that massively affect drug prices in this country. We've seen a lot of rise of like cost plus models, whether it's Blueberry Pharmacy or Freedom Pharmacy, shout out as they've both been guests on this podcast before, or Mark Cuban's outfit. Do you see this as kind of a way that might help bring costs better under control that maybe is being overlooked by regulators or something that might help make these more affordable to patients? I do. I do. And let me, let me use this as an opportunity to tell your audience what it is Pharmacy Checker does. And Pharmacy Checker, first of all, has been around for almost 20 years. And what we do is we um, verify the credentials of online, of online pharmacies, and we compare prescription drug prices. And a forte of ours, and trust me, there are ph pharmacists that know about us and have brought us up with their patients when they can't afford their prescription drugs. We vet these pharmacies based in Canada and internationally to make sure that orders placed on those websites are not some rogue site, which are extremely dangerous. So that's where I agree with the FDA that there are dangers and uh, patients need to be made aware of them. We vet these online pharmacies to make sure that orders placed on them 
are being filled by a licensed pharmacy, where there's a licensed pharmacist, where there's a prescription, where there's a prescription that's validated, that it's not a drug that can't be sold by mail order, uh, that's temperature sensitive, which I know is done here, and that's a whole other issue. And so, <laughs> yes, we've covered and that. So, <laughs> okay, and so you know, the safest international online pharmacies uh, are safe. But here's the thing: in getting to Mark Cuban and PBMs, and how to disrupt the industry here to bring down prices, we constantly tell people. If it is a generic drug, you do not, shouldn't say that, you almost always don't have to go to Canada. Generic drugs are often much cheaper here. Mm -hmm. um, and so if generic fill makes up, what is it, 80, 90% now of it, fill? It depends if you're measuring quantity or dollars, but yes, if you're measuring the, the actual quantity, I believe it's your Yeah, correct. the quantity of scripts. Okay. So it's like 80 to 90%. Most of these people should not have to buy it internationally. Then the problem is, what about generic drug prices? And so um, a lot of pharmacies make their money off of generics, but a lot of PBMs really mess up the market by creating these profit spreads you know what, Eric, I could go on to explain it, but you can explain it better and your audience knows. The PBM acts as middlemen in a way that um, uh, that forces the prices much higher, and that can even hit generic drugs too. What good innovative models have done is take out the PBM try to cut out as much of the middle as possible and go directly to a manufacturer and find um, generic drugs, FDA-approved generic drugs, and buy them directly and sell them in a cash market. And I've been asked a lot about Mark Cuban's Cost Plus Drugs and I think they're doing a really good job. And look, as, as, a, as, as an activist on drug prices, just that Mark Cuban, Shark Tank, the owner of the, of the Dallas Mavericks, has created this, brings the problem of high drug prices to greater public awareness. And um, you know, I think that's pr pretty great. But also, if you go to his website, you'll see that, um, you know, 30-day supplies of, um, you know, lisinopril or lisinopril, 30 days is $3.60. Fluoxetine, $3.90. Imatinib, uh, the generic of Gleevec, which the retail price, which obviously no one pays, but it's worth mentioning two thousand five hundred and two dollars like at some list price at walgreens uh is fourteen fourteen dollars and forty cents no middleman they just sell that and they're a public benefit corporation and cost plus actually means something oh and just for the record i i have no commercial affiliation whatsoever with 
cost plus drugs. Although Mark Cuban did follow me on uh, Twitter, which I thought was pre pretty chill. Cost plus means we get the drug, we do a 15% markup, we've got to pay the pharmacist. So there's like a, a dispensing fee. But I, I forget what it is. It could be $7. That's it. That's what they do. And if they stick to that, they're going to be able to charge in the cash market. So you don't use insurance with this low prices. They're not the only ones who have done this, but because of the celebrity of Mark Cuban, it's really made a bank. So one way to start a pharmacy business that's innovative is get a really famous billionaire to invest and just say, hey, I got this company. A lot of people are going to come to your website. But the elephant in the room, and I, I'd like this to be more of a di discussion. What can they actually do with brand name drugs? Yeah. It's a patented drug. There's a monopoly. Yeah. What do they do with Genuvia? Genuvia, the retail price for a three month supply out of pocket is like five, six hundred dollars. Uh, there is no generic counterpart available yet. Uh, it's like uh, 200 in Canada. So what what could that model do to lower the brand name price if there's no competition? Mark Cuban has said they're going to be working on brand name drugs. But to me, the big elephant in the room is how do you shake up the market there? And that's where you can take it back to the PBMs. They're taking a huge, <laughs> they're yeah. taking, they're, they're, they're first of all pushing expensive drugs, right? Mm -hmm. Because they make a bigger profit on it. Uh, and so I bet you um, cost plus drugs, which has a PBM. I, I don't know if you know this, it's pretty clever from a marketing perspective. Instead of a pharmacy benefit manager, they call it a patient benefit manager <laughs> to put, I know, right? Uh, to put the patient front and center, not the pharmacy benefit company. Um, so they're going to probably try something there, but you can't bring the price way down when there's no competition. And so, look, I'll tell you, I'm happy about the Inflation Reduction Act. You want Americans to stop buying drugs from Canada? Bring down the prices in Met Medicare. That takes care of the 65 and over, over group, right? Mm -hmm. So you either do it through public policy, drug price negotiations, or you do it through importation. Those are the two ways to bring down brand, brand, name, brand, brand name drug prices. Yeah. And just to recap a little bit, there are a few things I won't say I fully agree with the way maybe Mark Cuban's system has it quite laid out. Um, we have had an high ranking employee of his on in the past, but they did not talk about this. And I think it's just interesting. There's a few, it's more like nuanced arguments, but I generally do like the way he's done it. Other people have done it first. Like I said, Blueberry and Freedom are the first ones I heard of, but again, really cool model there. And the brand name is the huge elephant in the room. I just keep thinking of Humera and how it's like, I don't know, $5,000 a month and it's been on the market for like 25 years. I don't even know how that exactly works. But uh, before I let you go, Gabe, I have to ask you the two questions I ask everybody who comes on the podcast. And I think these could be pretty interesting since obviously you're not a pharmacist, but you are very well versed on all these laws when it comes to drug prices. So 
if you could change one thing about pharmacy, and we've spent a lot of time, that is not a law. So this can't be a law, something pharmacy related. What would it be? Actually, I don't want to be anticlimactic here, but what I have to say isn't about drug prices. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Not, 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 not on that. And honestly, and it gets to something we talked about before we started the podcast, pharmacists in the U.S. are not being treated fairly. And uh, there was an article in the New York Times um, actually two and a half years ago titled How Chaos at Chain Pharmacies is Putting Patients at Risk. Yep. And the and the subtitle says pharmacists across the U.S. warn that the push to do more with less has made medication errors more likely, quote, I am a danger to the public, one wrote to a regulator. So the one thing that I think should change in pharmacy is the community. So you could you could do this through law, but the community, and as you know, because of the documentary that you brought, brought up, this is, this is an issue that's going to explode. The activists among pharmacists and their fellow travelers um, need to sit down with the National um, Association of Chain Drugstore and start to turn things around so that this isn't happening. Because, you, you know, for, look, I have faced criticism, uh, mostly from sources funded by the drug companies who don't like what I'm saying or what I'm writing about drug importation. I'll say, it's not safe. Give me a break. Look what's happening at, you know, at c corporate pharmacy here. So let's deal with the safety issue of preventing dispensing errors by ending the kind of awful pressure that they're putting on everyday pharmacists. Yeah, I could not agree with that more. And thank you for supporting that and also calling out the uh, the documentary that's soon to come out. Uh, Would you like shots with that? If anyone wants some more information, I've stepped up to be a producer of that uh, financially, but they still have all creative rights. So if you want more information, please reach out to me. But yes, I could not agree with that more. So thank you for bringing that up. We did not rehearse that, I swear to God. But either way, I full agreement with you there, Gabe. All right. Now, if you could change one law in pharmacy, federal or state, in case you know states have their own quirky laws, what would it be and why? So now I'll go back to my roots. I mentioned earlier, Senator Sanders had introduced an amendment that would legalize more fully and properly regulate for safety uh importation from the united kingdom canada is already legal but there are regulatory hurdles that we didn't get to and we won't but it really forms a framework where where um uh where where u.s pharmacists could actually import wholesale from regulated sources lower priced brand name drugs and actually be part of the solution if they could do that, then there's less need to do personal importation. 
And I support those laws. And I don't, I think they're going to hurt PBMs. They're going to hurt pharma, but not enough to offset their, you know, gargantuan profit model. And they'll benefit pharmacies. And most importantly, Eric, it would benefit patients where they'll have lower priced brand name drugs. And along with that law, yes, it would make it out of a legal gray area where if an American wanted to go to Canada or buy from mail order, uh, they could unequivocally do so and not in this area that, you know, Tim Kaine said his dad was a quote unquote lawbreaker. Yeah, no, I, I get that. And I think it would be good to always clear up some of those things and make it more, uh, less nuanced and easier to read as somebody who is just reading through pharmacy law today. It's never fun to have to read that stuff, no matter who you are. So thanks for sharing that. Hey, where can people find you if they want to reach out? Obviously pharmacychecker.com, uh, LinkedIn's how we met yeah, or else. I mean, pharmacy checker, you're not going to find my, <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to give out my, uh, email on your show, <laughs> but if, but, but if you go to Pharmacy Checker and you'd say, hey, I'd like to talk to Gabe, uh, someone will contact me. And also, I wanted to put in a plug. I uh, founded a nonprofit organization called Prescription Justice. Um, so that's not PharmacyChecker.com. That's PrescriptionJustice.org. And we advocate for lower drug prices here, not just through importation but by ending patent games so that so that humera is not a uh exclusive uh monopoly price drugs for another hundred years um and um uh other policies to bring down drug prices here so those are ways to kind of check out what um i've been working on and to contact me Awesome. Awesome. Uh, you can also follow him on Twitter. Just type his name in Twitter. You can follow him. I literally, you might have heard me do it in the background because I realized I didn't follow him on Twitter before this, but uh, another way you can follow him as well. So, and un unlike you, Mark Cuban doesn't follow me, but he did retweet one of my tweets and I think it's like my most liked tweet ever. So that's kind of fun. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> that's easy when you have 8 million followers on Twitter to have a hundred people like it. It's nothing. Um, but Hey, thanks for joining the podcast, Gabe. I really appreciate it. Keep up the amazing work and I hope others can reach out and find you as well. And, uh, as always listeners, thanks for listening to the political pharmacist podcast, your prescription for pharmacy. Eric, thank politics. you. Eric, thank you. I appreciate it. Again, your prescription for pharmacy politics. <laughs>